Hi, my name is Giselle Donnelly. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a special anniversary edition of the Eastern Front podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues. Yulia Zoza and... Dalibur Rojas. Giselle, um, I wanted to start with you, if you, if you don't mind, and this, this broader question of, uh, of America's role in, in the current uh, war um, uh, in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, uh, the United States pledged to send Abrams tanks to Ukraine. Uh, President Biden ruled out uh, sending F-16 fighter jets. There is uh, this, this looming question of what happens to U.S. support uh, over time as this war goes on and, uh, and whether we really are setting Ukraine for victory in this war or whether we are simply trying to keep the fighting going, um, to use the words of President Biden, you know, whether we are going to do whatever it takes. It might not be the same as, as doing whatever it takes for Ukraine to win. Well, Dalibor, you've asked the most anxiety-producing question that you possibly could right at the start. I'm nervous, I have to say. The Biden administration has both exceeded my expectations and uh, driven me to despair sometimes within the space of 15 or 20 minutes or so. Uh, we were having this conversation at sort of the one-year mark uh, of our podcast and the same timeline uh, in regard to the Ukraine war. And President Biden has been somewhat sphinx-like uh, throughout, throughout the course of the year. Um, you mentioned the, the tank controversy. You know, that sort of also demonstrates that even when we do the right thing, we sort of do it in the most uh, offhanded and backward and self-defeating way uh, possible. At the same time, this past year has reinforced, I think, almost beyond question, the centrality of the United States to European security. So will the Biden administration continue this pattern of sort of just-in-time, uh, reluctant contributions and let's just call it escalation or, you know, provision of greater capabilities and greater quantities of equipment to the Ukrainian army. I think that's unfortunately the most likely outcome. And so he's playing with fire both on the battlefield, but also on the home front. And he's now confronted by a, a House of Representatives that is certainly when it comes to headline grabbing, dominated by the uh, uh, MAGA right, which is very much against support for Ukraine, wants to cut it off as uh, severely and as fast as they possibly can. They probably don't have the votes to do that, but uh, the president will have to work harder, uh, I think, to secure the transfers uh, that, um, that Ukraine needs. Also, the final sort of point on this, the Eastern Europeans have given about all that they have to give, especially if you measure it by former Warsaw Pact equipment that they've been husbanding ever since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and also, uh, in the case of the tanks, the German Leopards that they have received over the last 20 years or so. So we are really at a moment where the United States must be the arsenal of democracy because all the other arsenals have sort of been uh, emptied out. Uh, so other than the Ukrainian will to fight, the most important question in the war for the coming year is 
the question of United States support and its continued willingness in the 11th hour and 59th minute to provide the leadership that Europe needs to stay engaged. It strikes me that there is a tension between the sort of theory of the conflict that the administration operates and the drivers of domestic support for arming Ukraine. So, so if your idea is that you want to help, but you want to do it gradually in small increments so as to prevent the conflict from uh, you know, inflaming itself too much and, 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 and spreading further or, or, or having a sort of disproportionate Russian reaction, that does not make for a form of support that leads to a quick Ukrainian victory. Yet, to sustain the support, like you need wins. You need to be able to tell right. a story like we were able to tell in September, with the Ukrainians retaking ma massive chunks of the territory. Like, like the, the more you do what the administration is doing, the more it will start looking like a forever war, and the more people will say, why are we doing this? What are we getting out of it? It's a stalemate. Let's get the heck out of there. And I think to maybe to add to this and put things into perspective, what strikes me right now, one year into the war, is that Biden and Washington generally has gone out of their way to not define the end of the war, right? We're at the same point that we were discussing last summer. That, of course, builds into what you were saying, that um, it drags the war on. Um, there's this, the fear of escalation is still the dominant sort of taboo topic that nobody talks about except Biden in a couple of um, op-eds. And we are, you said this a bit earlier, um, Giselle, where now we talked about the midterms, how crucial the midterms were. The midter in the midterms, we've seen that Ukraine has not been a topic. And we're now beyond the midterms into a big unknown. We still don't know exactly how much the support for Ukraine has been reduced um, with in terms of um, voting numbers um, on the Hill. And we still don't know to what extent this will be a continued trend of reduction, whether now we're in January, February, whether in December of this year, um, we will have significantly less Ukraine support, significantly more Ukraine fatigue, and we will have moved on to the next interesting conflict um, here in Washington and in the White House, etc. Or we will be comparable to where we are now. And I think this is striking for both sides of the Atlantic, how little we know. Well, the president has been more than a little passive uh, in rallying support. I mean, uh, you know, he's president. He's got a lot of things on his plate and you know, with various debt ceilings and other pressing domestic issues uh, uh, on his front and entering already the 2024 presidential uh, campaign season. You have to wonder uh, whether that sort of sustained use of the bully pulpit is something that uh, is on his horizon. But you're quite right, Nadal, where it makes for this sort of weird you know, multiple moving pieces dynamic where material support for Ukraine is dependent on Ukrainian success on the battlefield and domestic support in uh, the United States and the United, domestic support in the United States and, you know, forward leaning by the Biden administration is necessary to get 
our allies to contribute material support to Ukraine. So you know how these billiard balls bouncing off one another in a way that's very difficult to, to predict. I guess you have to also wonder how the politics of this is going to play out in the United States going into the presidential campaign season. It may be, you know, a, a very slight sort of pushback against what you suggested about President Biden's passive role. It could be that uh, if he were more vocal and if he used, you know, the weight of his office to make this case for, for the support for Ukraine, there would be this risk of, of, of Ukraine becoming a real sort of partisan dividing line. And we have really no idea, like, who's running on the Republican side and what they'll say about Ukraine. Uh, but but if, if, you know, you don't want to create too much of a space for sort of Ukraine skeptics by, by sort of, you know, hugging and embracing the issue too, too strongly. I mean, I'm... Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, the Republican Party, I mean, people like uh, House Leader... Mitch McConnell have been stalwart in their support for Ukraine and has, has much of the Republican uh, Party in the Senate. The House leadership has been, you know, also tepid and, uh, um, you know, hemming and hawing. But the thing that I, you know, so I'll just make this sort of my final, you know, thing about which I need uh, psychological counseling <laughs> is, uh, is whether the House Republicans, who can't accomplish, okay, they have their oversight function, and, you know, they're going to be talking about Hunter Biden's laptop and, you know, FBI malfeasance for a long time. But where they could be sort of thrown a bone, it seems to me, is on Ukraine support. They can't achieve really anything material legislatively, but... Again, I, given the sort of shallowness and, and the decline in support for Ukraine, particularly amongst farther right Republicans and conservatives, you know, whether w that will be the thing where Biden steps back, where McConnell is kind of offset by, a, you know, a, a weaker position in the House. So basically, we are in a situation in the United States dominated by, at least here and on the Hill, dominated by the unknown, right, <laughs> from one election to the other. And to me, that is what the Europeans are using to the most significant extent. Well, there's a big surprise. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so to, we're now at a point, again, not surprising, but where, especially with the story about the leopards, it wasn't clear until the very end, until a few days after the latest um, Rammstein yeah. meeting, who was hiding behind who. Was it the, um, the Germans behind the Americans, the Americans behind the Germans? But to me, this is sort of a classical, already in this war, situation where Western Europeans are um, finding excuses, pointing at Washington's political instability when it comes to Ukraine, relative political instability, to say, we're, we are not going to do anything about Ukraine anyway. We do not want to assume leadership, looking at Germany particularly. We want to assume leadership in the, in the French case, but not when it comes to Ukraine. And so we're going to keep it more or less the same. And this, of course, feeds into what my biggest fear is into the next 
longer term, one to two years, that, um, that the Republicans here are going to get so mad at the eternal burden sharing um, issue and that Europeans really on, on paper are not doing enough, whether that's military aid or reconstruction or financial aid, that this is going to just create a spiral that is going to push us down and down towards the end of the year. Well, I think, I, yeah, let's look at, at Dalibor for this. He's, yeah. uh, he's, <laughs> You're responsible he's for this. He's institution <laughs> expert. So, so there are a few, few things going on. Um, one is that it's pretty obvious one year into the conflict that there wouldn't be much support for Ukraine and much military aid going to Ukraine if it weren't for the U.S. leadership, if it weren't for... Yeah the Rammstein group and Secretary Austin really taking a lead on that and, and pushing the Europeans. And, and so if that effort is somehow weakened, eroded, broken on this side of the Atlantic, we can't really expect the Germans, the French, others to, you know, yes, the Eastern Europeans, but there is only so much mileage you, exactly. you get out of the uh, Central Eastern European countries, you know, however good their, their, their intentions are. There's just only so much, so much capacity. The, the other question that, 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 that bugs me is, is obviously the politics of this in countries like Germany or, or, or France. So just look specifically at Germany, and I want to test this idea on, on, on you, Julia. It strikes, me, German here. <laughs> uh, it strikes me that you have parties on the extreme that are more or less pro-Russian, the AFD, yeah. the Linke, maybe the Linke less so than than the AFD, but, but those have limited popular appeal, right? And I mean, look at German public opinion, the um, fraction of the German voting public that does harbor a degree of skepticism about military aid to Ukraine is much, much larger than the support for AFD and the Linke combined, which creates a political opening for one of the mainstream political parties to follow a sort of more reserved, more skeptical line. And that political party happens to be SPD, right? Like the Christian Democrats, the Free Democrats, the Greens are pretty hawkish, like by, by their sort of, you know, usual yeah, standards. CDUs, I'm not convinced about them, but uh, I don't want to put my finger on the opposition yeah. party. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so, so I mean, there is a real, one could think that there is a real disincentive for, 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 for Scholz to sort of join the choir, choir of, 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 of pro-Ukrainian mm -hmm. politicians. Uh, and, and, and he can get much more sort of, you know, sort of political mileage out of, out of being the more prudent, so to speak, cautious, skeptical voice, the one who sort of is, 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 is you know, using the brake pedal more than than the accelerator. Well, isn't it a similar pattern in that regard that both him and others are using sort of public opinion in, uh, in a parallel to France? The public opinion in Germany and in France is sort of split. But as we've seen with cases in Central and Eastern Europe, when governments have been working hard, pro-Western governments have been working hard to change that, you can do that in a year. You can increase or decrease support for Ukraine significantly through political messaging. And there's this conspiracy, maybe, theory going around Scholz's day-to-day um, -day decision making in parallel to Merkel before 
Merkel used to be known for guiding her decisions only based on polls. And now people are accusing Scholz, including within Germany, German analysts, of guiding himself by polls. And if we looked at the tanks, it was split. It was day by day changing, one to two percent. But he, at times, more so than in the French case, is pushing it too far and has seems to be unconscious of the political capital that he's losing within the country and outside. Um, when he goes out and says, well, I met this Polish jogger that told me, why are you helping Ukraine? Um, the whole world is exploding in Germany and to its, uh, to its east um, and is ridiculing, ridiculizing him rather. So in this context, I, Scholz remains, Scholzing still remains a mystery. I think you're on the right track that he's using public opinion to his own interest. And I'm pretty sure there's a pretty strong, in SPD, sometimes in CDU as well, but they're not um, in the focus in, in the coalition. Um, right now, there's a sort of strong lobby that we see behind that maybe will be revealed, maybe will not. But these financial ties to Russia, unlike in other countries, really do exist. And there's significant incentive there. The problem is that he seems to not calculate, and neither does France and remains a mystery, how much political capital they're losing as sort of the, the countries that are expected to lead Europeans and the countries that are expected to think beyond immediate tomorrow tanks or not and answer the questions of EU membership for yep. Ukraine and NATO membership for Ukraine. They're the two countries that blocked it in the, in the first place when we think back to 2008. So I don't know what this will mean in five years from now, that we don't have any willing leadership within so the, Europe. One question is how this war ends, right? Like, so if, if this war ends in a decisive Ukrainian victory, then Chancellor Scholz will be seen by German public opinion as being on the wrong side of history, right? And I don't think it will sort of benefit him politically. But if this war ends in a sort of frozen conflict kind of situation or, or in a sort of stalemate of some sort, or, or if people in Western Europe just become tired of, 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 of the support for Ukraine, I bet that his calculus as did he'll be able to then claim, look, everybody was gang-ho about Ukraine. Mm. I was very skeptical from the get-go. And there'll be, I mean, there'll be an electorate willing to, 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 to listen to that. I think that's, that's the sort of game he is playing. So, so that's why Schulting might be sort of explained like within the framework of sort of ra rational political decision-making, I fear. Yeah. And that, that's why it might be difficult to sort of change. Like we've been sort of waiting for him to get serious for, for a year now. And he hasn't gotten serious. Okay. And, and I bet there is a reason for that. Well, but that's, that's prioritizing a very narrow domestic political perspective over two really critical things. I mean, well, how, how shocking for a politician. Well, <laughs> yeah, but this is getting, you know, it's a hole that he keeps digging deeper and deeper and deeper. He, you know, he always parrots the... Uh, the Germany must lead Germany because of its economy and wisdom and so on and so wisdom, forth. Wisdom, first and foremost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is bound to lead in Europe. You know, if there's a less than satisfactory outcome on the battlefield, the question, one of the questions will be who lost Ukraine or, or who fell short in this time of trial. 
And, and I don't see how you can both posture yourself as a leader, but also a symbol of European and German uh, security failure on a, on a scale like this. It is, it reminds me you know, a lot of Woodrow Wilson prior to World War I, who thinks that it's just a squabble between, you know, two equally uh, sort of aggressive and acquisitive warring sides rather than a moral struggle and an ideological struggle as well. I mean, Schultz has shown no sensitivity to that hardly at all. And, and what else is the glue that, that could possibly keep, you know, a fractious Europe and together and the United States continuing to support and play its leading role? Well, I think, you know, to put myself just briefly in the European shoes, the argument will be, well, there was nothing that we could have done. There was nothing to be won. Russia has nuclear weapons. Um, Eastern Europe remains a difficult buffer zone. So we did the best we could, and this is where we got. And, you know, ultimately, I, I don't think this conflict ends with a victory. Like, like, Ukraine will not be taken over by, 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 by the Russians. We've sort of seen that Ukrainians can defend themselves. Uh, I think his theory of the case, if I can again, you know, Make sort of the, 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 the sort of short side of the story is <laughs> is that like this is going to be some stale, some sort of stalemate anyway. Everybody will be tired of it. Ukrainians will you know continue to bleed the the you know prime age men in, in for another year or two, and and at some point this will have to come to an end, um, and 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 by then I will have been the sort of you know, from his perspective, reasonable, skeptical voice, the cautious one who, you know, prevented a nuclear war. How does that go down in the Baltic states or Poland? Well, he's not running for office in, in no, Estonia. But, uh, okay, so if he wants to be the chancellor, you know, of a, of a coalition government in Germany, uh, maybe that is the, the safe play. But it is, it is not a recipe for being a, a, a leader in Europe at a time where security questions have again come to the fore. It's not a posture that will be, uh, in, you know, endear Germany to, you know, a, a good slice of the American public. You know, uh, I think that's, that, that, that's certainly... Certainly right. I mean, I was going to uh, test another German-related okay. proposition on, on Neulia, which has to do with the Zeitenwende speech. Mm -hmm. right? so, so, so everybody got excited. I mean, I wonder if... We've got no effort. The promise, the, 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 the premise of the speech mm -hmm. was not that Ukraine would lose this war and therefore Eastern Europe as a whole and, and sort of Germany's neighborhood would, would become far more dangerous. Uh, and, and to Scholz's surprise and, and other people's surprise, Ukraine has proven more than able to defend itself. Mm -hmm. and, and in his mind, that actually makes it makes the title when the speech sound like a mistake that you want to sort of walk back. And you know, like because Ukrainians are able to defend themselves, like we don't really have to do all that much. You know, on the 27th of February last year, it looked like Germany had to do a whole lot. And, and it looks like you know he sort of made this big statement, 
and and now he's been sort of trying to walk it back for 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 an entire year. Is is my? I think habit. there's. I think you're right. I think there's two elements really to that. This. Zeitenwende's speech of his is a repeat that we've seen in Germany again and again. I think the most recent one is 2014, just before the Russian first invasion of Ukraine, when Germany, pushed by the United States and other allies, said, we will step up, we will take on more responsibility. And they have in their own way, in that they led Minsk 1 and 2. We all know how that turned out, but that's their vision of leadership through diplomatic means, all of that. Um, and they, uh, in 2015, stepped up um, going over the heads um, legally of um, what they had ascribed to within the EU and getting in, um, uh, opening the doors to um, to refugees and, and migrants. And um, you can tell each story in a different way, but this is, we all interpreted it differently, but this is what they can supply in terms of leadership. So I think the question is, we cannot ignore Germany at this point because they're they're not just the economic powerhouse but most of Central um, Europe depends on them economically um, and so there's no way to walk back from it and the only way to look at it is how can we I guess anchor Germany not Central and Eastern Europe that much but anchor Germany into Central and Eastern Europe so that at least they can match some of the expectations when it comes to economy and driving non-military leadership yeah. without expecting too much from them. The question then, I guess, back to you and, and maybe Giselle wants to weigh in on that too, is what of the European future? Yeah. Um, where is Ukraine short of that too? But are we looking now at coalitions of the willing more than alliances? Are we looking at some um, some security arrangements beyond the war and during the war that are that are here to stay, that are enduring, um, and that avoid Germany, avoid France, and avoid, of course, buying ever again German or French military equipment because you know they won't let you use it, right? I think that's sort of the, the, the central question, and, and it goes beyond just this narrow issue of military assistance and, and however important, obviously, it is for Ukraine to, to win this war and retake its, 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 its territory fully. I mean, there is also this longer-term question of what happens after the war. And, and I think there, the West and Europeans in particular have a collective responsibility to deliver on the promise of the 2014 Maidan revolution and, and the association agreement and, and now the accession process that's, that's getting underway. And I think that's a really tall order. And, 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 you know, however critical we are of the sort of Western European reluctance to provide more weapons to Ukraine, I think to me that's that's even the sort of bigger issue that the administration should be sort of working on and pushing for already to to make Europeans commit to Ukraine's EU membership, because that's what's going to drive domestic reforms. That, that, that's the only thing. That's the only chance for Ukraine to really be turned into a sort of success story after the war. And when you think about the reforms that happened since the Maidan and, and the role played by either the EU or the IMF, like that, that's go, that was going to be central. And my, my real nightmare for, for Ukraine is, is, is that once this war is over, 
they'll be placed in the same limbo with mm-hmm. the Macedonias and Serbias and all these countries. And like, you know, the French don't want to enlarge the EU, the Germans don't want to, like, that, that would just diminish their voice. And the whole construction Ukraine is massive. This enlargement thing is going to be very expensive. I mean, Ukraine is, what, like, half of Bulgaria's per capita GDP in, 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 in real terms. And the... I think it's going to be a very sort of steep uphill battle to be to be fought for for Ukraine's place in the EU, and and I think we should be already thinking about that now, especially if this conflict ends up in some sort of a frozen situation, stalemate, where there is a disputed border or or, or lack of a formal formal peace treaty, because that would provide a a way out for for some of these actors. Well, so I think those are great questions, and I think you're the one. Uh, of the three of us to <laughs> also provide an answer. You know, just to be a little bit more of a devil's advocate, Germany, and I would agree with this, has, has gets big points for um, reorganizing its energy uh, industry to, to uh, live without uh, Russian gas supplies, etc. However, they did it in a typically German way by, you know, subsidizing their industry and their populace and keeping the price of, uh, you know, heat down. But it was also a way that, you know, sort of typifies German behavior in the EU in that it pissed off its neighbors. Again, Dalbor is really a question for you. What would a post-war EU that was really responsive to trying to integrate Eastern Europe into Europe economically and especially in things like energy and other infrastructure. So it's not just that Germany itself is no longer threatened by Russian economic warfare, but its neighbors are at least more insulated, if not, if not similarly so. I, I really wonder, you know, the EU matured during a time of un- historically unprecedented peace. So this is a big test of whether the EU can survive in more traditionally competitive geopolitical conditions. And so if, if I can I'm make sure. my, my pitch yeah, on no, how, how, how to sort of navigate this world, it is just to sort of think beyond the traditional, very sort of bureaucratized and technocratic sort of enlargement template that we know from the earlier waves of, of EU enlargements which involved you know, getting all these countries up to speed in every domain of legislation that was relevant to, to, to the EU before accession and, 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 and meeting all these sort of benchmarks and, and, and going through a whole very long sort of laundry list of requirements before being admitted into the club. And it's sort of binary, zero, one kind of situation. I don't think that's going to work in Ukraine's case because Ukraine will take you know, 25 years to, to, to get there. Like even under the best of circumstances. What is needed, and I think there is some recognition of that, including from Ursula von der Leyen, who sort of alluded to that, is, is, that, is that it needs to be sort of broken up into smaller chunks. Right? So, so, so let's front load the economic benefits of the membership in the single market to the Ukrainians as soon as possible. Right? Like Norway, Switzerland are in the single market, now, not in the EU. Ukraine could do the same. And it would, you know, it would still require some heavy lifting in terms of... <coughs> You know, real domestic reforms and 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 and, and sort of leg- legislation being adjusted and, and standards, etc. But it's less of a lift than than full-fledged full. EU membership. There is no reason why 
Ukrainian universities and students could not join the Erasmus schemes without Ukraine being a full-fledged member of the EU. There is no reason why already they are connected to the European grid. You can, and then there are initiatives like within the three C's initiative to strengthen the interconnections between European countries when it comes to energy infrastructure. I think that would sort of answer some of those questions. And, and, and there's also this question of sort of security, right? And, and, and the securitization of one's place in, in, in sort of these, these Western alliances and, and the EU. And, 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 and there, obviously, either NATO membership or some form of a special relationship with the US would, would, would help. Uh, in addition to the fact that, I mean, Ukraine is going to be a pretty powerful and well-armed country at the end of this conflict. The Heimers are there to stay. And, and this is, I guess, another to add to the endless questions that we have today. I, I'm wary that EU integration, even in these um, sort of gradual ways, like you were suggesting, suggesting what I, which I think makes sense, is actually possible without NATO membership. And, and it goes back to, you know, most of Central and Eastern Europe, not torn by war, but torn by communism, was really only pushed into the European Union after it was integrated into NATO, again through US leadership. And can you then, in an even more torn society, not society, but infrastructure, right, war-torn in this case, uh, Ukraine, can you have significant functioning effective investments, foreign investments, when you don't have security guarantees. And I think that's only possible within NATO, and that sort of pushes us to look to how the war can end, and we know it's going to be most likely, the most likely scenario messy on certain degrees. So then the problem that now anti-Ukrainianists in the end, uh, anti-Ukraine uh, anti people are invoking, is well, if you don't have relations- pro-Russian. Pro-Russian, all right. If you don't have perfect relationships with NATO, with uh, neighbors, there's no way you can integrate. Um, and I think this needs to be, to be the dis discussion around U Ukraine and NATO needs to be normalized. I think we have now a bit of a taboo. And we also need to think beyond, this is something that someone's written it down a few decades ago but it can be, can be changed. Just like in the EU, we managed to do exceptions and look at cases such as Cyprus, et cetera. So I think we're, we're just putting up paper obstacles that we need to actually talk about and normalize. Well, we could, we could swap Hungary for Ukraine. That would be, uh, you know. Its neighbors would be happy. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let the uh, people in Brussels uh, figure this out. Before we sort of concentrate on Ukraine, which has been so central to us over the last year and certainly will be for the coming year. Uh, Yulia, I particularly would like to ask you about southeastern Europe, which in some ways has been a dog that hasn't barked uh, as much as it might. Romania, in its sort of, sort of sato voce way, has been a pretty steadfast ally. Moldova remains kind of balanced on a tightrope or, or something. And then there's the question of sort of the Black Sea coast uh, more broadly. The Ukrainians have been able to, you know, defend Odessa, you know, take back Kherson, but still not the rest of its Black Sea coast. And then, of course, uh, the, the 
Crimean Peninsula sort of remains a key to the whole thing. But what do we need to do to, I mean, first of all, what do you foresee for the coming year? Is this a button that the Russians can continue to sort of push as they wish? And is it something that needs more attention from the United States and its European partners, more broadly speaking? Yeah, I think it, it certainly does need more attention, but it's so hard to explain the ways in which the Russians have infiltrated and are creating these problems in these spaces that, you know, in Washington time you have an elevator speech to explain and after 30 seconds people get lost, like why, why and how, how can we fix this? But in an effort to kind of centralize some of these themes, yeah, Romania has been steady, that's sort of the anchor, right, on the eastern flank, eastern front, but we still don't know whether they're delivering any weapons to Ukraine, um, and that's a big problem. They've been focusing a lot on Moldova, but Moldova remains very unstable. Maya Sandu is in power, but for how long? We've seen the Russians trying, visibly trying, to remove her with protests. Hasn't worked so far, but that's not a given. And in the context of these fears about another full-scale invasion, they are very much of a target. So to me, the most important thing that came out of the last two weeks of this space has been President Maya Sandu going to Davos and saying, maybe it's time for Moldova to consider joining the alliance and we need missile defense systems. So this would, would be where Romania will have to step up and say, we're supporting both. Here's your Patriot system. Now let's um, piggy bank on others. Um, and I think this still needs to happen and it can happen with a nudge from the United States. Um, and I think the last element here or one of the two last ones, just to wrap it up. I think Bulgaria has been, despite being split in public opinion, like we've seen a bit in Slovakia at the beginning of the war, Bulgaria has stepped up, it turns out, political article a few weeks ago, that they played a crucial role actually fooling the Russians to deliver energy supplies of theirs via Bulgaria to Ukraine. They've been supplying all these Soviet ammunition um, necessities that the Ukrainians needed for the older tanks. And they're split, but I, but I think the real estate of, of Bulgaria on the Black Sea can be ideologically moved to become more anchored in the West. And the last thing in terms of where the Russians are right now, in Romania, again, the bigger country, people are over the last two days publishing endless lists of Russian agents or narrative multipliers and websites. It's like 400 websites that have popped up and disappear. And all of them are focusing on Ukrainian minorities and Romanian minorities and all of that Hungarian um, context. When I was over there a few weeks ago, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Romania made a statement uh, lamenting what the Ukrainians are doing, which is actually trying to push the Russians out, right? Um, and 24 hours later, that statement was congratulated by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia. Um, so that <laughs> that's like a it's low a point, sign. right? <laughs> so basically these examples just to tell, I think it's really complicated. It's hard to sell here because it's so complicated, but of course it's prime real estate 
the United States is most present on, on all the eastern flank over there and it's safe there and it's worth building it out, especially to help Ukraine, especially without with limited access to the sea. But I think there's a lot more to be done and we see much better signs always from the north, center and north, right? Since speaking of the center, there's one country we didn't really gotten into very much, which is a country that captivates the imaginations on the political right these days, which is which is Hungary. And oh, yeah. uh, one has to be really worried not only about the influence that sort of the Hungarian example has on the thinking of people on the political right, both when it comes to culture wars and when it comes to foreign policy, but, but also one has to be worried about the role that, that Hungary is playing within the alliance and the EU and, and when it comes to even basic things like sharing of classified information, uh, when it comes to basic military professionalism. So recently the Orban government introduced reforms that are going to retire a big part of Hungary's officer corps trained under, under NATO. And obviously these narratives about you know minorities being supposedly oppressed in, in, in Ukraine, etc. I mean, Ukraine, Hungary has been at the forefront, and Hungarian government has been at the forefront of of spreading these very often pieces of, of, of mis or disinformation throughout the public conversation, including on this side of the, of the Atlantic. My least favorite conservative columnist, but the most sort of avid urbanista amongst American conservatives, uh, quoted Orban. I had another one of his uh, sort of... Uh, you know, bromance sessions with, uh, with Mr. Victor the other day. And he quoted Orban as saying thing, uh, something that I thought was sort of unintentionally true. First of all, I mean, Orban meant to be disparaging Ukraine when he described it as no man's land or no country. I think that is actually true and has been kind of true of Eastern Europe since the end of the Cold War, or the parts of Eastern Europe that we are now most concerned about. These are people who want to be in the West, belong in the West, would be frontline states for the West, but who are under some form of attack from Russia, you know, whether it's uh, through influence campaigns or direct military attack. And he also said that Ukraine was like Afghanistan, but he was intending to refer to the United States. I think actually it's better applied. It's another Afghanistan for the Russians, uh, circa 1979. So maybe Orban has more wisdom than we uh, might otherwise uh, imagine, but not of the sort that, uh, that, that he intends. Let's talk about Ukraine a bit as we wrap up. Dalibor, when we were talking before, you floated, I think, what must be a nightmare scenario for all of us, but something that is worth thinking about very clearly, and that's what happens if Ukraine cannot reclaim all its territory or not reclaim it uh, in a timely enough way, particularly in the next year, to get there before the enthusiasm of its mm -hmm. allies is exhausted. Why don't you walk us through what your thinking is on that? First of all, I think we really have to defer to the Ukrainians on you know, how they want to wage this war, how long they want to wage this war. You can easily imagine you know, a year in which 
Ukraine will lose tens of thousands of fighting men, and at some point the leadership, the government, the president, and the public opinion will conclude that it might not be worth you know, fighting to retake this or that chunk of Donbass anymore. And, or, or that, that Russia will manage to freeze the conflict along some sort of line of contact or whatever. And, and we have to be, I suppose, at that point very steadfast in a, sticking with the regime of sanctions against Russia. Like we shouldn't be rushing into offering concessions and sort of normalization of, of that sort of relationship once the actual active fighting comes to, to an end. And we should also be ready to and make Ukraine sort of succeed long term, however, in whatever sort of shape or form it emerges out of this conflict. And, and I think there are many sort of reasons to be, to be worried. One is going back to my you know, roots as an economist, which is like the Ukraine is facing tremendous economic damage as a result of this war. We had Natalia Resko on the podcast who talked about the financing gap, three, four billion every month that they are fighting. A friend of ours, friend of the show, Owen uh, Dreher from, from the Martin Center had a piece recently where, where he says that it's you know, very praiseworthy that we are giving Ukraine all this assistance in the form of loans. However, it might be possible that the Ukrainians won't be in a position to repay those loans. They already are running you know, over 20% inflation rate. And, and so, so unless the West is really generous, you can end up in a situation in which you have a sort of cycle of hyperinflation, uh, a financial crisis, something that, 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 that could even like embitter Ukrainians themselves against, against the EU and, 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 and the West. If you add to the mix, you know, a sort of Franco-German reluctance, to treat Ukrainians as, 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 as prospective partners and members of the EU. All I'm saying is that really like, you know, however this war ends, the, the sort of outcome of this sort of wider struggle for, for Ukraine's successful future, I think is, is, is still fairly uncertain. And I think there is a lot of work to be done beyond just, just the sort of work that's being done on the battlefield. So then qualifying it to you militarily, does Ukraine, with all of that banning support inside and outside, or the risk of that, does Ukraine, is it enough for Ukraine this year to take back the bridge, or do they have to take Crimea to keep things going? Because we know they need Crimea to be able to survive economically in the long term. I actually, I've been thinking about this uh, a fair amount, and let me just try this one out on, on YouTube. I think the sort of minimum threshold is for Ukraine to demonstrate that it has made a qualitative improvement in its military capabilities. I mean, they have put together not only an heroic defense, but an ingenious one with, you know, bits and pieces and dribs and drabs and bailing wire and... And even combined arms. Sometimes. Well, that's what I, I mean. I, if they can conduct a campaign that maybe because of the scale can only produce, you know, a limited success, you know, maybe cutting the land bridge or retaking Melitopol or something like that, I think that will go a long way. And as Delabor said earlier, you know, the victories and particularly the, the Kharkiv offensive really bumped up Western confidence and willingness to to back Ukraine. So if the Ukrainians can demonstrate that they've digested all the weaponry that they've been given, and maybe if they can integrate a little bit more or, you know, sort of demonstrate that if we give them additional capabilities, there will that success is in the cards. 
then I think we live and breathe with hope to come. In the fall. Well, I don't know if we can get, you know, putting these things on a timeline. I mean, it's also a reason for the Ukrainians to be super cautious and make sure that when they conduct a counteroffensive that they've got as many things headed in the right direction as, as possible. Uh, but they've been remarkably operationally patient. So I think they're, they understand that. And they also understand how their success in the battlefield influences Western opinions. So that's kind of lugubrious in the sense that it's a little hard to see the war ending this year, barring some Russian collapse. But I do believe that there's every prospect of uh, the Ukrainians being on a credible path to victory. So shall we end with a Slava Ukraini? <laughs> well, I, would, I would just add that these things are mutually, um, the, the, the political and the military are yeah, sort of mutually are so reinforcing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, 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 like if you have if Ukrainians end the war, so to speak, on a high note, and if there are uplifting stories to be told uh, about Ukrainian bravery and, 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 and these sort of military triumphs, I mean, it makes the opposition to Ukraine's EU NATO membership and, and to further support, right. like it makes it, you know, it, it weakens the, 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 the sort of Ukraine skeptical side. And maybe as a last note, looking ahead into the end of next year and beyond, what I think also becomes clear is that no matter when and how this war ends, we here in Washington need a Russia strategy. Um, we need a containment strategy. I don't see anybody talking about it. I don't think it's going to be a rollback strategy, though I wish it were. But beyond that, there's a lot of questions. We know that Russia in some capacity is going to remain a spoiler in the region and on the continent beyond. We know that it fits into the rogue states with nukes, right? We know we have a partnership without limits with China that is creating a lot of worries. And despite us moving here more and more into the redundant Asia pivot, <laughs> um, I wish we were already there, right? Um, but beyond that, um, it, it will remain an issue that needs to be resolved based on the economic side, how to think about long-term trade and sanctions yeah. regimes. Um, on the conventional military side, how to anchor Central and Eastern Europe because they are the only ones that can hold the fort. And, and then on the nuclear side, um, in the long term, having to think about how to design continent that can be safe from eternal threats and blackmail. Well, one thing we know is that there'll be plenty of fodder for the Eastern Front and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to uh, rally again in another year. <laughs> That's right. On that uh, note. On that note, um, uh, we want to thank you for joining us uh, here on the Eastern Front. And so until next time, and for myself, Giselle Donnelly, and... Yulia Zoza, and... Dalibu Rohaj. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>